Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Back in April, I wrote an article for the Times of Israel in which I interviewed medical historians and anti-Semitism experts about the rise of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories during a pandemic. Then police in Minneapolis killed George Floyd, sparking a nationwide reckoning. Calls for justice and equality filled the streets and social media, but so did more conspiracy theories. Now blaming George Soros for funding violence that erupted and falsely accusing Israel for teaching the fatal chokehold to American law enforcement. Here to discuss these dangerous myths is Holly Huffnagel, AJC's Director of Combating Antisemitism here in the United States, and Dave Rich, Director of Policy at the Community Security Trust, a charity that protects British Jews from antisemitism. Dave, Holly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Manya. Hi. So, Holly, I will start with you. Before coming to AJC, you served as a policy advisor for the Special Envoy for Monitoring and Combating Antisemitism in the State Department. And that focused on anti-Semitism around the world. Um, But you just took on this role for AJC back in April. Why was this position created and why now? I think really with AJC as this premier global Jewish advocacy organization, combating anti-Semitism has really been at the forefront, right, of the organization since our founding in 1906. However, we've noticed this uptick, right, in in the United States in anti-Semitism in recent years. And If combating anti-Semitism at home and abroad is our number one priority, we really needed to redouble our efforts at home, including the creation of this position. So this U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism, the job is really to spearhead the agency's response to anti-Semitism in the United States and our efforts to overall uh, protect the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. And why now in this particular moment is that position especially important? AJC, we did a survey last year, which showed that nearly nine out of 10 American Jews say that anti-Semitism is a problem in the United States, with 84% saying it's increased in the last five years. And I think so many of us have, we've looked to Europe and we've looked to other places in the world and seen rising anti-Semitism and almost said to ourselves, well, at least it's not here. You know, then we, we saw Pittsburgh, we've seen Poway, we've seen the horrific attacks in, in Jersey City. And the data is actually reflecting those attitudes that we surveyed now. Um, 150% increase in the last five years. Every state has reported anti-Semitism, uh, maybe with the exception of, of Alaska and, and Hawaii. And we've had about a 600% increase in social media accounts of white supremacists just since 2016. So this is, it's, it's, this is the now, if you will, uh, to respond to, to this unfortunate trend. Okay. So let's take a step back and let me ask, what do conspiracy theories have to do with these incidents that you're describing? You know, if we even think about the word conspiracy, it comes from the Latin word like conspirare, right, which means to breathe together. And it stems from this desire to make sense of a complex world in simplistic terms by finding someone else or something else to blame. Mm -hmm. And so we can even look to something called the illusory truth effect, which shows that the more we've heard something, even if we know it's false, even if we're told it's false, but if we hear it over and over again, at some point we actually might say, oh, I've heard that before. That's familiar. Maybe, you know, and and we might believe it. And that's what we're seeing, unfortunately, with Mm anti-Semitism. Dave, on your end, what are some of the expressions and myths you see circulating there in the UK? 
The remarkable thing about the conspiracy theories that we see, uh, whether they are anti-Semitic or not, actually, is the way that they transfer very easily from country to country Mm. and from crisis to crisis. So as soon as the coronavirus pandemic began back in, really back in late January, we started to see the kind of more uh, extreme fringes of, of the far right in Britain spreading conspiracy theories, either that the coronavirus was a hoax invented by Jews or that it was real and being spread by Jews. And then as soon as um, the news started to spread about the death of George Floyd and the protests and demonstrations in the United States that then were then reflected in the UK as well, we started seeing conspiracy theories that the Jews are behind that too, and it's all a plot to divide society and set people against each other. So I think it's the adaptability of these conspiracy theories that really is striking. You know, there have been people spreading their conspiracy fears about 5G mobile phone signals for years in this country and Facebook groups dedicated to it. Mm -hmm. And nobody really paid any attention to them. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, when the coronavirus started to spread, people made a linkage between this supposed you know, mobile phone signals and, and causing the, the, uh, the symptoms of the virus. Mm-hmm. So we started to see mobile phone masts being uh, damaged and burnt down. I think over 70 different mobile phone masts in the UK have been damaged as a result of this. And we started to see posts on Facebook saying, how is it there's no 5G fo- mobile phone masts in Jewish areas? Of course, those of us who study anti-Semitism, whose, whose job it is to be alert to anti-Semitism, have always been aware of the danger of conspiracy theories because it's, it's at the heart of what anti-Semitism is. But I think nowadays what we're seeing is a much wider recognition of, of the danger that these theories can pose um, to the whole of society uh, and actually to people's health and people's lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You mentioned it coming from the far right, Dave. What about the far left? And is this perhaps one thing that's bringing the two sides together? Absolutely. We ran an investigation over the last two or three years, which we published in a report in January this year, into a conspiracy group uh, that meets uh, in London every month. They're called the Keep Talking Group. And it brings together literally neo-Nazis with trade unionists, Uh, people who've been thrown out of the the Labour Party for anti-Semitism, people who have no particular fixed political ideology but just will believe any conspiracy theory under the sun. And the thing that glues them together, the thing they agree on, is that there is this vast conspiracy and everything that happens in the world can be explained through conspiracy theories. And somewhere or other, either centrally or at the fringes of every conspiracy theory, are Jews. The latest row over anti-Semitism in the Labour Party in Britain was over this idea that Israel ultimately is to blame for the death of George Floyd because it's Israeli police that supposedly taught that particular technique to American police. And this is a conspiracy theory that we have seen pretty widespread on the far left and the far right, literally sharing the same content from each other's websites within their own spaces Mm -hmm. in order to promote exactly the same idea. And that's where the the differences between these different extremes just disappears. Yeah. So so what messages, you brought up the Labour Party, what messages are coming out of the Labour Party under Keir Starmer's leadership 
now that Jeremy Corbyn is out of the picture, I say out of the picture, but that might be a stretch. <laughs> He's never going to be completely out of the picture, right? He won't be. And, and one, of the, uh, one of the issues is that as people get thrown out of the Labour Party for anti-Semitism, they will gather somewhere else. They will continue to be active. So the broader political left will have this problem for a long time to come. Uh, but the messages coming out of the Labour Party since Keir Starmer took over as leader in April have been pretty encouraging, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Pretty much the first thing he did when he was elected leader was to apologise to the Jewish community, to commit himself to rooting out anti-Semitism. Uh, he's had more meetings with uh, Jewish communal organisations in Britain um, in four months as leader that Jeremy Corbyn managed in in over four years. Mm. And he has been following up those strong words with actions, with suspending and expelling people. He's got a big job because there is an anti-Semitic political culture on the far left, which embedded itself within the Labour Party under Mm -hmm. Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, um, and which is going to take quite some time to really root out. But as you say, it will never really go away. Mm -hmm. The job is to push it to the fringes where it has less influence. Yeah. So, Holly, you've spoken before about the challenges of combating these conspiracy theories. It's tricky because when you do oust someone for spreading a conspiracy theory or erase a conspiracy theory from a social media channel, it almost does fuel that tendency. We talk about when we're in this space of combating anti-Semitism, whether we use the the term as a bludgeon, right, and go after every single person that says something anti-Semitic and, you know, kind of come down with a hammer and does it just drive them underground or, you know, do they um, have followers elsewhere? Does it embolden them? You know, and this is kind of the question that we have to ask ourselves. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, we we have to call it out. Like, that's like the first thing that we have to do. And the the linkages between anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories, right, and fighting something that's irrational. There's actually some best practices that we can apply to conspiracy theories in general Mm. from the fight against anti-Semitism. And so I think the first thing really is is the the calling it out, um, letting our leaders know again to to call out anti-Semitism, to call out falsehoods, to call out conspiracy theories. But something I've been thinking about a lot lately as I've been kind of witnessing the, the breaking down of community bonds in our own society, you know, people are persuaded by those they know and those they trust. And when we have this like kind of um, dissolving of relationships, when we no longer are having like personal conversations with, you know, many friends, many family members who might espouse some of these beliefs, like we have to have that obligation to ourselves to counter it. I think another important uh, piece is just better tools and and research that really explains how anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories manifest, um, especially online, mm-hmm. because it really is the Internet, which is there's no gatekeepers with the Internet. This is this is why um, we're seeing more of it. And one thing that, you know, AJC's done and, we, you know, recognizing the fact that we need to be better prepared to understand how anti-Semitism is manifesting online is we developed a um, glossary a resource called Translate Hate, which really translates, translates that hate, you know, whether it be the terms, the tropes, the phrases, um, to to better understand anti-Semitism um, in order to to combat it. And I think something similar could be done for conspiracy theories as well. I, I really do. Um, so that's the second thing. Um, two more things that come to mind, and this one's a challenging one, but it's addressing the root causes. I think, again, so often we, we just go after, you know, anti-Semitism without recognizing that it doesn't exist within a vacuum, right? That there are other societal ills that are connected to it. I think the biggest way to combat conspiracy theories is by having a stable and transparent democracy. 
And, you know, we know the conspiracy theories, they erode trust with government. Um, They erode trust with other citizens, with each other. So, okay, these are rather scary scenarios we have been talking about. Um, Before we go, Dave, if I could ask you to tell our listeners, okay, what do we do now? As Holly said, directly trying to debunk conspiracy theories can sometimes uh, backfire. Uh, It can actually sometimes reinforce them in, in people's minds. But I think what really needs to be done is to promote education about how to really understand sources of information and how to recognise a credible source and and not a credible source. And I think so much of this always comes down to the role of social media platforms Mm. and the way that information is, is rated and valued and shared on social media platforms until social media platforms are really forced, and they have to be forced because they won't do it voluntarily, forced to play a responsible role in promoting credible information and not treating truth and lies as being of equal value, Mm -hmm. then we're going to really struggle to bring about change. Holly, if you could address Dave's point and then what can listeners do about this? Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with uh, Dave about, you know, engaging the social media platforms as best mitigating, if you will, the um, conspiracy theories, this idea, right, that freedom of speech isn't necessarily freedom of reach. And this reach has gone very far. And we're now trying to kind of pull it back in, in some ways. And I think I mentioned a few points earlier, but I can kind of sum it up by saying this. We have to better understand what conspiracy theories look like in the U.S. today. And I think Something that we're realizing now is that there has been this shift from conspiracy theories to conspiracism. The theory element is all of a sudden gone. So you don't need any proof anymore. The public reasoning has just been thrown out the window. So assertions, accusations do just fine. And that's what we're seeing online. The the second thing is really preparing for what's ahead. I know during this pandemic, we're in the middle of conspiracy theories right now. So it's almost hard to think about like the day after, like what happens when we go back to quote unquote normal? How are people going to be affected of six months, one year, however long it is of uh, of online influence? One of these theories, you know, called this accelerationism theory that um, some people on the far right, white um, right supremacist nationalist groups, the so the Boogaloo boys, if you will, are espousing, trying to encourage the civil war, this race war, this overthrowing of government. And they've gained a lot of traction. Um, we don't you know, want to add to their numbers in any way by lifting them up or elevating them. But we have to be aware that this is happening under the surface. And this is something that we're going to be having to deal with, you know, in the next year, the next two, next three years. And then the last piece is, again, um, just having a multi-pronged approach to anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories, again, because it's irrational. You can't just have a one solution for it, right? And this is where I think AJC is really going to come in. It's kind of existential to who we are as an organization, um, fighting anti-Semitism through various ways, whether it be coalition building, whether it be, again, through the engagement with the online platform space, whether it be through legislation or advocacy. I mean, all the different ways that we can tackle this problem. And that's and that's the future. Thank you so much, Holly, Dave, for, for joining us and, and shedding some light on this. It's certainly a struggle. I know it's a struggle for journalists to decide whether or not to, to give attention to some of these fringe movements, but you know, certainly being aware of them is certainly important. So thank you so much for being part of this conversation. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Manya.
Dr. Yonatan Freeman is an Israeli international relations expert and an instructor in political science at the Hebrew University. He joined us this week to offer an update on what's going on in Israel as the coronavirus appears to surge back. Yonatan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, the initial narrative about Israel and the coronavirus was that through quick, decisive action and high-tech approaches to things like contact tracing, the country had decisively beaten back the virus. That's not the story anymore, though, right? Where do things stand today? Well, it's true that we have an increase now in terms of the numbers of people who are having the virus. But if we look at Israel compared to the world, we're still one of the leaders in having the lowest uh, mortality rate. So in terms of the infection spreading, that's true. We've had uh, an increase in infections that we're battling uh, once again. But when you look at the hospital system, at the medical system, at our expertise, and making sure those who are infected uh, don't in the end uh, suffer greatly or even pass away, we're still the leader or one of the leaders in the world uh, with that regard. Mm -hmm. Just this week, the director of public health in the Ministry of Health, uh, Sigal Sadetsky, she announced that she was resigning. She basically said there are too many cooks in the kitchen. There are too many people who want to be decision makers on this. There's not enough direction. Uh, maybe the undertone of that is not enough people are listening to me. And she said, quote, Israel is heading to a dangerous place. How significant is that resignation and, and how much stock do you put in, in what she said? Well, the resignation, which we will have to see if it really goes through in the end, because now there's some pressure uh, by uh, different individuals for her to rescind that uh, resignation, because in the end, she is an expert. And we know that she did a lot of things during the first wave to try to uh, bring down the infection rate of the virus. Uh, when we look at the uh, many cooks in the kitchen, we have to realize we only recently had an election. Or we re only recently formed new government. We recently have a new uh, Minister of Health. So it's true that we have uh, many cooks is because the meal changed on the menu. And we need now to come about and form it a policy which will take into account this new situation. And I'm sure that we have the brightest minds, if it's her or anyone else, to deal with the situation. Israel had been preparing to reopen to travel from countries like Greece and Cyprus, perhaps even all of Europe. And now that's off the table. How much of a blow is that to Israel, both economically as a country that derives a large percentage of its GDP from tourism and just in terms of kind of citizen morale? I think if you look at Israel, it's a it's mainly a service based economy. Uh, much of our, our economy uh, or a lot of it is really based on income coming in from abroad. We have millions, millions of people coming in every year uh, for tourism, both for religious reasons, personal reasons. And the fact that our skies are closed just about really main the world in, in general uh, is affecting drastically our economy. Uh, I think that uh, one thing that we're looking at right now, and it's been reported for the last few days, is we're looking into allowing tourists in once again but in a very controlled manner. In other words, we'll let a group in on a private jet. They'll be together the whole time in the same hotel. We won't be letting them go everywhere they want individually. And I think in the future, if it continues, I think we'll find a way to once again allow tourists in, but in a safe way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I got what you're saying, Yonatan, about you know Israel's hospitals being prepared, Israel having kind of the high-tech approaches to... Um, to withstand, even if it looks like the numbers are going up. But the numbers 
are going up with several hundreds of new cases every day. At this point, maybe over a thousand new cases every day or on many of the past few days. Is there a sense that Israel, which was so quick to shut down so rapidly and so early relative to when the rest of the world was shutting down in the first wave of the virus, is there a sense that Israel is taking too long to shut down this time? Well, it's good that you mentioned the first round because it's a war, really. The first battle, let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, when it comes to the opening up trend that we had after the first uh, round, I think that uh, part of it is really based upon public opinion and the fact that as a democracy, a lot of the public opinion was subscribing to a reasoning where the virus is now weakened here in Israel. Add to that the fact that we had uh, right the third elections was really at the time when it was happening, the virus. So the public opinion was very much looking for answers. And I think in the end, that pushed some of the decision making to open up quickly. But I think on the other hand, even when we opened up, we continued to work on preparing in terms of looking for a vaccine or a medicine. And as you know, our Mossad agency and the IDF and others have been working really, frankly, to help uh, the situation both here and abroad. You uh, you mentioned a vaccine, the search for a vaccine. Ambassador Ron Dermer, Israel's ambassador to the U.S., was speaking to an AJC audience a couple months ago, and he said that he would gladly take the bet if you were to offer him Israel and you get all the other countries in the world, which country is, is most likely to uh, to come up with, uh, with the vaccine first? He said he would be glad to take the Israel side of that bet. Would you accept the same terms, Yonatan? Well, uh, Ron Dermer is, is a good guy. I think uh, he's been there for a number of years and he, and he does a lot of good work uh, in the state of Israel. He understands America. If you look at our the Institute, which is now looking for the vaccine, the Biological Institute in Nestiona, and if you look everywhere, they're one of the leading uh, institutes in the world uh, to, uh, to look for vaccines and doing research, I think uh, I would take that bet. And another thing, which we have to remember, it was really published months after it happened. We had a operation before the virus came to Israel to get the virus strain from Japan, China, and Italy. So in other words, before the virus actually got here, we sent teams to get it, to bring it to Nestiona so we can already start studying. So if, if you think about it, out of all the uh, individuals and groups around the world, I think that we have a good chance here because we even started earlier than the rest of them. Mm -hmm. Israel is in a relatively unique situation of countries around the world in that it has control not only of its own borders, but of the borders of a semi-distinct uh, second entity, the West Bank. And when we speak about the virus in Israel versus the virus in the West Bank, we tend to speak in distinct terms because of that semi-permeable border. What do we need to know about the way the virus is acting in the West Bank, the extent to which the Palestinian Authority and Israeli military officials in the West Bank are handling the growth of the virus? We have great concern when it comes to the areas in the West Bank controlled by the Palestinian Authority and the Gaza Strip controlled by the Hamas regime. We have great concern because we can't be certain that they're doing or taking the measures correctly to fight the virus. And also, there are individuals who come in to that territory, both legally and, and not legally, through tunnels or whatever it is, where we don't know where they're coming from. Uh, for example, Egypt, which is bordering Gaza, has an influx of the virus right now. It's going out of hand over there. And we don't even know 
to the extent of whether the virus is coming in from Egypt to Gaza. So we have a big situation there. And I think there's two concerns that we have mainly. The first concern is that if the virus gets out of hand and their medical apparatus can't take care of it, we will have to and will be expected to come in to Gaza, to the West Bank, to assist them during that medical emergency. So that's number one. The second thing, which is even more dangerous, and during the last few days and weeks, we saw some uh, moves by Hamas specifically, that the stronger the situation is with regards to the virus and its effect on the population in Gaza, the more Hamas might use it as a way to shift public attention to something else. In other words, the more there's a virus in Gaza, there might be more criticism of Hamas inside Gaza. So this could cause Hamas to start lobbing missiles, doing attacks to get Israel to respond so that the population there say, oh, the virus is not the big issue. Now it's Israel. Israel is the one who's hurting us. So I think that's a major concern that we have, which, by the way, not just with Gaza, but also Iran with regards to the virus and the Iranian decision to start something up because of what's going on inside. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. So the IDF has been taking a, a big role. Sure. It's undeniable, however, that the Shin Bet has also been playing a role. And, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. But as a result of relying on the Shin Bet for some of this stuff, uh, like contact tracing, for example, the Knesset has recently authorized uh, new surveillance powers for the security agency, actually over the objections of Nadav Argaman, who's the head of the Shin Bet. Is that a dangerous democratic precedent to set? So... We should clarify about Argaman and his comments. Argaman has no real issue about using his Shabak to do the sort of things we need to find out who has the virus. His issue was with using it in a way which makes it more publicly known. And our problem with that in terms of the Shabak isn't that the Israelis know we have that capability, but our enemies know we have that capability. And I'm just throwing this out there. I'm not going to be giving ideas to any... Hamas members or anyone. <laughs> but think about it. If if Shabak sends a message, a text message to someone, you were next to someone with the virus, go into isolation. I can just think in my head, Hamas operatives or Hezbollah, for example, dying to get the virus so that they get the message from Shabak. And then they'll be able to know, oh, so he knew I was over there. They'll try to, you know, they're smart guys. They might know what, what's going on. So Argaman, his issue is not what the Israelis knowing about it is what the enemy's knowing about it. And when it comes to the Knesset, that was a move, by the way, which we didn't need to take. We need the Knesset to, to authorize it, but we did that to strengthen democracy, to show that the representatives themselves voted to use that tool, and we didn't do it in a different way. Mm -hmm. You paint a relatively sunny picture of the state of things uh, right now in Israel compared to some others. And uh, just as we close, I want to kind of put that in hard numbers, right? I think many people would have given Israel a, a grade of A or A minus for its handling of the virus in the first wave. So let's say a, a 95 out of 100. Do you think it still deserves that grade? Would you give it a, a slightly lower grade? You're a professor after all. How do you assess the students work here? Well, you know, there's always a grade for the written work and also a grade for effort. I can tell you... Uh, <laughs> a, a for plus, effort. Yes, A plus for effort. But I think <laughs> if we look at the situation, I mean, this is a virus that we don't know enough about. It's been around for a few months. But I think if you look at the infrastructure we have here in terms of our expertise, our medical system, our know-how, 
the fact that this country can't lose a war. If there's one country in the world which will end of the, if a war that we lose means the end of the country, it's Israel. So I think this situation, this reality, where we have no uh, demographic death, we don't have a geographic death, we're always uh, feeling that we have to make sure we're never in the corner. I think this makes Israel one of the best, if not the best place to be in such a world emergency. So yes, there are some battles that are won and lost, that's true, but it all comes down to the war. And I think if the war against the coronavirus has to meet a place where it has the most chance of being defeated in a good, logical and efficient way, I still put all my chips on Israel. Okay, well, we uh, in the American Jewish community are certainly uh, rooting for Israel. And I dare say, uh, looking at Israel still with a great deal of jealousy, our country certainly doesn't get a, an A for effort. So uh, we appreciate having you on, Yonatan, and uh, take care. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Naomi Ravik, the all-star fellow in our young leadership department. Naomi, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I come from an inter-race family, and because of the pandemic, we're all at home uh, every Shabbat for the first time in years, which has been so nice. Um, we're very close to D.C., so we're almost always talking about politics in my house. And for the last few weeks, we've really been focusing on Shabbat about the ways that we can all relate to and understand the social justice issues that have been so prevalent in our country. Myself and my sister are both college age, or I guess I'm recently post-college age now as I just graduated. Um, so we have had the opportunity to explore Jewish identity individually on our respective campuses, and this time being able to come home and speak to our parents about what it means for us to hold leadership positions on campus in a Jewish sphere, how we bring social justice to the forefront of our experiences, and how we make a conscious effort to bring Judaism to the center of our own individual lives has been amazing to explore as we come back to what it means to experience Judaism as a family. I've always felt a sense of responsibility to bring social justice issues to the Jewish tables that I'm at because I am biracial and Jewish. So I've always felt that I live my life between several planes and never fully fit into one space. And now more than ever, with questions of police brutality, anti-Semitism, and the restructuring of our justice system being so in the mainstream of conversation. The last few days, we've been speaking a lot about the anti-Semitic remarks made by Deshaun Jackson and the outrage coming from the Jewish community. I've seen a lot of commentary about why the reactions to this haven't been the same as the recent nationwide reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement. And so we've been talking about, in my family, why it's a comparison in the first place. This country is so divided politically, socially, and economically, and it seems that we're divided also on which causes to speak out against, but we shouldn't be. Because when you can't conquer hatred in all forms, when you're factioning off which types of hatred are worse than others, which deserve more attention and which are more serious. So this week at our Shabbat table, I think that we'll be exploring what we think about the voices that are speaking out in our country against injustice, what we think our own individual role should be, and what our role should be as a community. That was beautiful. Um, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Manya, what about you? Naomi, Sefi, at our Shabbat table, we will be talking about fake opinions. Not fake news, fake opinions. It's been on my mind lately because it's been on everyone's mind in one way or another. Senator Tom Cotton's piece in the New York Times stirred a revolt in the Times newsroom and cost the editorial page editor his job. The debate focused on whether it was important to hear his particular point of view. What concerned me was whether critics were right that it contained distorted and erroneous information. 
This week, the Daily Beast uncovered a network of at least 19 fake personas who have placed more than 90 opinion pieces in 46 different outlets. Some Jewish and Israeli outlets fell for the hoax as the columns presented valid points of view, such as calling for more sanctions on Iran. One outlet defended keeping a column online, even when they knew its author didn't exist, arguing there were no factual errors, well, besides the byline. But our Shabbat Table conversation will focus on the exchange between Peter Beinart and Daniel Gordas, former co-hosts of their own podcasts, and both real people, by the way. <laughs> Mr. Beinart is a journalism professor at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism here in New York. He has written an 8,000-word essay in Jewish Currents, which he summed up in an op-ed in the New York Times. Mr. Gordas is a scholar and author of two handfuls of books, most notably in my mind, Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn. He has written a rebuttal to Mr. Beinart in the Times of Israel. The debate? Whether a two-state solution has a future. Mr. Beinart argues it doesn't. He says one state that treats Jews and Palestinians equally should be the goal. Mr. Gordas argues that is not realistic, calling Mr. Beinart's thesis dishonest. What he means is dishonest by omitting facts. According to Mr. Gordas, Mr. Beinart leaves out the many great thinkers and Israeli leaders who considered his approach and discovered that nothing but a Jewish state would give Jews a home. Mr. Gordas contends that Mr. Beinart is counting on his readers not doing the necessary homework to figure out these omissions. He calls for more honesty. As a religion reporter, I know not all facts, in finger quotes, are empirical. And on the opinion pages, it's often about perception, belief, and feelings. I'm not accusing Mr. Beinart of dishonesty. I leave that to his critics. My point is, the free exchange of ideas fundamental to democracy has to be honest. No, outlets should not publish columns by fake personas, no matter how viable their point of view. There are a plethora of think tanks and advocacy organizations with real policy experts who can share those valid points of view honestly. American Jewish Committee comes to mind. And columns, no matter how unacceptable the opinions, should at least be factually accurate. They should fuel robust debate and eventually solutions. We talk a lot about fake news and the danger it poses to the democratic process. But the credibility of what appears on opinion pages matters, too. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table. Sefi? Well, I've been missing sports a ton due to this pandemic lockdown, and I'm incredibly excited for baseball and basketball to hopefully start up again soon. One thing I haven't missed, though, is professional athletes saying or doing incredibly stupid things. On Monday, as Naomi mentioned, Deshaun Jackson, the aging wide receiver for the Philadelphia Eagles, posted a fake quote on his Instagram story saying that though Jews want to, quote, extort America, their plan for world domination won't work if the Negroes know about it, end quote. This fabricated quote was attributed on the post to Adolf Hitler. Jackson also shared two posts about how much he loves Louis Farrakhan, the anti-Semitic leader of the Nation of Islam. Now, the Eagles responded swiftly, and while their statements weren't perfect, for example, they didn't mention Jews or anti-Semitism anywhere in the text, they got their point across, and Jackson issued not one, but two apologies. He's also apparently going to be meeting with a rabbi to learn about Judaism. So that's that, right? Well, no, of course not. First, NFL Hall of Famer and ESPN host Shannon Sharp weighed in on his program to stick up for the anti-Semitic minister Farrakhan, even as co-host Skip Bayless read out horrifying quotes from Farrakhan. 
Next up was former NBA player Steven Jackson, no relation to Deshaun, who defended him even after Deshaun had already apologized, saying that he was speaking the truth and bringing up the Rothschild conspiracy to prove that Jews have too much money and saying that Jewish people never stick up for black people. This was all the more difficult to watch because Steven Jackson was actually close friends with George Floyd and has been a crusading figure against police brutality in recent weeks. But here is where this mess starts to turn into a good story. Because even as important black figures in sports like longtime ESPN commentators Stephen A. Smith and Mike Wilbon were castigating Stephen Jackson for his hateful words and chiding him for distracting from his important message of racial justice, a third athlete was weighing in. Zach Banner, another black football player, posted a heartfelt, beautiful video on his Twitter account. Sitting on the balcony of his Pittsburgh apartment, Banner said the following, quote, when we talk about Black Lives Matter and elevating ourselves, we can't do that while stepping on the back of other people to elevate ourselves. And that's very, very important to me, and it should be to everyone. Change your heart, put your arm around people, and let's all uplift each other, end quote. Visibly holding back tears, Banner invoked the experience of what it felt like to be on the Steelers when the shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue took place two years ago. Shortly after posting the video, he changed his profile picture on Twitter to the modified Steelers logo that includes a Star of David that the team embraced after the shooting, called on the NFL to pay more attention to anti-Semitism, and signed that tweet, Zach Mensch Banner. A mensch indeed. This morning, he woke up puzzled as to why so many $18 donations were coming into his foundation until someone emailed him to explain the significance of that number, chai, to Jews. And that's what I'd personally like to focus on. All the Jewish kids in Pittsburgh who just found themselves a new favorite football player. So to all of our listeners and to Zach the Mensch Banner, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.